Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. We're so excited for today's guest. Today we have Flynn Skidmore joining us. Flynn is a therapist, a business mentor, and a content creator who specializes in helping people create lasting change in their lives faster. Through his courses, community-driven content, and working with individuals, Flynn's clients deepen their self-acceptance and start taking tangible action steps to get unstuck. Yeah, Flynn was a treat to talk to. Um, you know, I, I actually didn't know what to expect going in. It's like when you meet people online, you just, everybody has like an online persona, right? We all do. And I mean, I hear this a lot when people meet John too. It's like, they expect him to be a certain way and then they meet him (laughs) and it's different. And, um, I was, I was very like pleasantly surprised because you know how I am like as the extrovert in me, I'm always like, would I have a beer with that person? <laughs> right. You know, that that's always like my, yes. like, do I like them? Would I, would I sit and have a beer with them at a bar? And I, I would, I would sit and have a beer with Flynn. So he passed my beer test. <laughs> yeah. I loved vibing with him. I feel like he is just so unbelievably intelligent, but he's mm-hmm. one of those people who does a really good job of integrating like some of the more ethereal, um, you know, concepts that are around like, universal laws and vibrational frequencies and how things like come into our lives with some of the tangible action steps that you need to take to get yourself into where you're longing to be in your life. You know, I just think he's like so intelligent. Yeah. It's like action oriented, but not in this kind of unhealthy, like Mm. the wounded masculine, like we always talk about, right? Like that very like, you know, do, 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 produce, produce, produce. It's not like that. He just is very focused on how do I get you tangible results in a way that's also going to be soul enriching, which Mm -hmm. I think is kind of a nice blend because I feel like so often it's one or the other. It's like, which I mean, as I'm saying that out loud, I think that's kind of the beauty of your and my dynamic, right? Is that we kind of blend the like, let's be out of our body, ethereal, pontificate, bigger concepts, and then let's put our feet on the ground and like actually make change. And I think he is a really nice blend of those two energies. And so I, I really appreciate the way he shows up. Yeah, so much soul. Excited to share this conversation. And then, so one more thing before we get into it, I just want to remind everybody to please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen most on, as well as give us a five-star rating and review. It does really support the podcast in reaching more people because, you know, algorithms. And also share this episode with a friend if it resonates because word of mouth is still the best way to discover something new. All right, let's get into it. Flynn Skidmore. So... Lynn, we are so excited to sit down with you. Um, I feel like someone shared some of your content with me. I'm a little late to the party. I know that you've been around and creating content for a while, but just so much of the way that you approach relationships and what we're doing in, in life is just so in alignment with things that I really feel strongly about. And so 
I'm excited to talk to you and pick your brain a little bit. But before we get into all of that, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about um, how you came into doing the work that you're doing now. Awesome. Well, first off, thank you so much. I'm really happy that you like what I share and I like what I share too. So when <laughs> like finding people who see things similarly is very exciting for me because it's just like mm -hmm. I... I like the way that you see the world too. So thank you so much <laughs> for that appreciation and that recognition. Um, I, um, so when I was about 17 or 18, I, I don't really know how this happened, but it just started to make sense to me that consciousness was fundamental. The meaning like mm -hmm. consciousness is the primary thing and all of these other things, our bodies, the thing we see around us are expressions of consciousness. Now, mm -hmm. I don't, I would have said 10 years ago that that's absolutely true. That's the way the world works. Um, I don't know that that's absolutely true anymore, but it still makes sense to me. So mm -hmm. seeing the world like that, I was like, well, I, and this was before I really heard anything about epigenetics or neuroplasticity. I was like, it's not genes that get passed down. What gets passed down are the ways that people feel and people's patterns of feelings and the ways that their personality has come to express those feelings. And the genes just seem to be like uh, a three-dimensional encoding of whatever that thing is, right? So mm -hmm. started to see the world through that lens and just became obsessed with it. I was like, okay, so if mm. people if people want to grow and change, what it seems like is that the most effective way to create change is to kind of figure out whatever consciousness is and adjust or tweak or that or allow that to grow. And if that happens, then all the things around us will change too. So mm. became obsessed with that and have kind of just followed that trail and I, I didn't even really set out to be a therapist, but I found something that I wanted to learn about called bioenergetic analysis and learned that in order to be able to be certified in that, I had to be a licensed clinician. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go for it. And that's, that's kind of how mm -hmm. I ended up in this place. Mm. Will you say more about what bioenergetic analysis is? Yeah, cool. So I, I never ended up getting certified in it because I found things <laughs> that I think... <laughs> <laughs> are better. <laughs> so it's um so it was created by this guy named Wilhelm Reich, who was a student mm -hmm. of Freud. So you know how a bunch mm -hmm. of people kind of broke off from Freud. Um, and what bioenergetic analysis is is kind of like the psychoanalysis of the body, um, mm -hmm. of the body and movement. So it's kind of like an early perspective on the body keeps the score. But what right. psych psychobioenergetic analysis was looking at was movement, how people's personality is stored in their movement and how learning to move new ways creates new options for personality and experiencing the world. Um, so that's what that was. But it was sort of like the it that led all of us into somatic psychotherapy. And I was going to say yeah. SE. That feels yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Are you? I hear you're you're a fellow East Coaster, right? Are you from New York? I grew up in Brooklyn, so I was born yeah. and raised in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and then oh, Fort um, Greene. Yeah, you know Fort Greene. Yeah, I moved from New York before I was here. I'm from New York as well. You grew up there. 
Yeah, well, I grew up in upstate, but I've been I was in the city for like 13 years before I moved to California. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I was what, a great uh, point. <laughs> uh, so cool. So yep. and when were you living there? 2006 to about well, 2005 to about 2000 2016, 2017. Oh, cool. Like that. Really yeah. cool yeah, time yeah. to be living there. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> what made you leave that area? I mean, like, what was that like for you kind of growing up in that area? And how did that, I suppose, impact also? Because the reason why I'm asking this is because I've been having conversations a lot lately on like culture and the difference in kind of that Northeastern culture. Um, it shows up actually in my relationship because mm. my partner is from California and uh, that Northeastern way of moving through the world I have found is like a very specific way. And I've yet to kind of meet anybody that's not in that one region <laughs> that Whoa. has the same like intensity, uh, the vernacular, <laughs> the way in which they speak, the way in the, you know, there's something about it. I'm just wondering if you, if you have noticed or found that that impacts you at all or has had mm -hmm. impact. May I ask how, how you notice it showing up in your relationship? I'm curious about like how it <laughs> expresses itself. Yeah. Um, I noticed probably a month or two in for the first time when we were like joking or laughing about something and I was kind of like, Oh, whatever. Fuck you. And he was like, <gasps> and he like clutched He's his heart and was like, can we, can we not say fuck you to each other? <laughs> And I was Whoa. like, what are you talking about? That's like a term of endearment in New York, you know? Um, and so there's been a lot of not just language, but also I think in the intensity of which I show up like in my life, um, which to me was, was kind of how everybody was. And it did, I didn't feel different, but moving to LA, it's been a, a difference, right? Like there's just not that same intensity, I think, um, in the way you speak and the way you address things and kind of like the, uh, say what you mean, mean what you say, no sugarcoating. Yeah, I love it. It's sort of unapologetic, um, but I feel I feel that energy from my East Coast friends, and I was curious to hear what Flynn was going to say about that. How? Because um, you know what's funny about it is is it's not something that I think about a lot or I'm confronted with a lot, but I do hear a lot about it. Um, so, Danae, like when you notice it, what are you noticing? What are you seeing? You know, it's interesting the word unapologetically comes, like I'm from the Midwest and uh -huh. I think something Midwesterners are very like, there's a sorry after everything. There's a like, <laughs> don't take up too much space. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Right. And, and my East Coast friends don't have that. It's like, this is what I feel. I'm in the room. I'm not apologizing for it. Vanessa is very much like that. Um, and I love it. I feel like a lot of times it like, <laughs> it's just me to like, no, we can, we can take up space here. But I think that that's, it just feels like there's a different energy in different regions where it's, I don't want to say like, because I lived in New York and I think New Yorkers are absolutely unbelievably supportive and polite, but they're not apologizing. Oh, right, <laughs> right. It's I true. can see how it could be experienced as inconsiderate. Like it could be, if you're in the apologizing energy, then it could be, it could seem abrupt and inconsiderate. And maybe sometimes it is, but yeah, it's not, it's not something that I think about a lot, but I think that I'm in many ways an overly considerate person. Um, mm. So I think I have the New York thing. And also I'm like, 
the person who's whisper yelling at people if they're speaking too loud when other people are sleeping. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I do. I do know what you mean. Maybe that's the counterbalance. Maybe that's why people like you and I can live in the West Coast and, and be accepted because it's the, the, the codependency overlapped with yes. the New Yorkerness actually yes. minimizes that abrasiveness a little bit. <laughs> yes, it created a monster. Yes. <laughs> hilarious. Um, go ahead, today. It's interesting you bring up codependency v because i think in terms of something i love so much about your content flynn is there's such an encouragement around personal responsibility and i remember the first video of yours that one of my friends shared with me was about you talking about your previous relationship and how often you were just like in the space of desperately attempting to get your partner to understand what she could do differently to love you well right mm -hmm. well like, said out for you i'm making it as clear as possible and it feels like you are just unwilling to do it whereas with your partner now um that person is like happy and excited to meet you there and it's not like pulling teeth and i think so often i do a lot of work with couples and i feel like there's something in this whole thing of like getting our needs met and how we communicate getting our needs met to our partner, where sometimes I feel like we are really spending a lot of energy trying to fit the square peg into a round hole. Yes. And there's something about this person not having an authentic desire to meet our needs, to be curious about how to love me well, that we need to pay more attention to. Yes. It's really well said. That's like more beautifully said than I could ever imagine it being said. It was so spot on. Yeah. yeah. I, I, um, the way that I see it is like, if I, if I want to appreciate and love a person, then I'm responsible for setting up the conditions and setting up the environment that makes it easy for me to love and appreciate that person. And sometimes mm -hmm. like being in a relationship with a person, being in a committed relationship is not the environment where you can love and appreciate a person because who they are and who they want to be doesn't line up with who you are and what you need and what you want to be, right? So, so if I'm noticing a pattern in a relationship where I'm not getting my needs met, I just find it so much more helpful to see that, well, one, to just remove blame from the equation entirely, right? to see that as not a their fault thing they are being who they are. They are enacting the patterns that they're enacting. And if I want these things, then it's on me to make choices and to set my life up in a way where I have these things. And that mm -hmm. might mean choosing to be in a relationship with a different person. Now, of course, there's like working on stuff, right? But if, if I don't think, and maybe, maybe you two have insight on this, but I've never really seen it work where working where you can make something work if it doesn't align with who the person wants to be. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, exactly. I, I wish I could, that last line you said about like love it to me, it feels like loving people for who they actually are versus who you need them to be in order for them to be loved. To yes. Be. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 That's what the majority of people spend a lot of energy in their relationships attempting to do. I think so. And it gets tricky because we're told that we're not supposed to want to change people, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, loving who someone is includes loving who they want to become. 
right? Mm -hmm. So if I know, if I'm in a relationship with the person and I'm clear on who this person wants to be, like, am I inspired by that version? Do I love that person that they want to be? Can I see the ways that they're enacting that right now, trying to be that? Can I love their process of becoming that? If mm -hmm. I, if I love who a person wants to be, and that seems like it aligns with who I want to be, and we can both support each other in becoming that version of ourselves, like that to me seems like it's a formula for success. But mm. if I, if I am not clear on who a person wants to be or who I want them to be is different than who they want to be, and that doesn't seem like it is going to work out favorably. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that we're having this conversation because right now I think my, my partner who, you know, John and I are in this, um, uh, I don't know this space, the season, I suppose of relationship where a lot of this is the conversation we're having. It, it, it's, it's showing up as the avoidant and the anxious dance, but it is actually, ultimately, we're having conversations about who who is it that you want to be in relationship? Mm -hmm. um, and can I see that? Not like I'm holding out for some version of you that you may or may not ever be. It's not about that. But it's like, as long as we're both aligned that this is what we're ultimately wanting to move towards, then can we agree to be in the mess and the work right now, knowing that this is ultimately both of our goals and our paths to get to that goal are going to be different based on the personality traits and the structures and the attachments and all that shit. But ultimately we both know like he wants to be a little bit more of this. I want to be a little bit less this or more of this. And so this is the kind of goal. And it's just interesting to hear you say that because I, I think that's so spot on. It's like, if you can agree on that, then that almost gives you a guidepost or almost like, um, like at that light in the dark when you're in the muck, which is normal in relationships, that muck. Yes. I think that's a, a fantastic point. And as you're saying that one of the things that, that came through for me and hearing you say that is learning to get clear on what it means to really want something, right? So mm -hmm. it's like if, if a person has a vision for what they want in their life, maybe they want to have a particular career, they want their home to look a certain way, make a certain amount of money, have certain friendships. To me, like, yes, those things that exist in three-dimensional reality are important. But to me, we want things because we're making a prediction that having those things will help us feel a certain way. So if I want a home in the mountains, um, maybe that's because that home, in having that home will amplify my experience of groundedness or peace. So what I right. actually want is groundedness or peace. This other person who I'm in a relationship with is groundedness and peace a priority of theirs too. And mm -hmm. if that's the case, then I, what's really helpful about that to me is like, if you're getting in arguments or if you're finding yourself in a pattern or a dynamic that you're not enjoying, you can then hold each other accountable to creating what it is that you actually want, which is groundedness. Right. So if what we want in the big picture is groundedness, how can we invite in groundedness right here, right now? And that formula for being in a relationship, I mean, I've, I've found it to be really enjoyable and satisfying. Theoretically, it makes sense. I don't have 30 years of it to prove that it leads to longevity, but it makes sense to me. I, I just love what you're saying so much because I feel like, again, around this conversation that 
I struggle with sometimes. Like I've gotten to the point with when people talk about um, getting their needs met, I'm like, can we call it a desire? Because mm. something about often like it being a quote need that sort of suggests, I don't know, life or death to me if I don't have my needs met. But yep. I think there's some some sort of power in getting really clear. Um, I think what I hear you saying is around like why I have this need, right? Like why do I have this desire? What is the feeling I imagine I will feel when this need, this desire is met? And then can I see if that is in alignment with this person that I'm attempting to be in a relationship with? Exactly. And and what I hear in that is when, if a person's engaging in that process, if it's like, I need you to get up and give me a kiss every single time I get home as soon as I walk in the door, right? So if a person goes through the process of identifying the feeling that they want, right? Mm -hmm. Then mm -hmm. maybe there's a part of them that's seeing their partner come up and kiss them as the only option for getting that feeling. But if they can allow themselves to see other options available for having that, it sets them up to be less attached to attached to having someone do what they may not want to do. Now, over time, if it's really important to you to have that type of affection and your person just doesn't want to get up when you get home, like that's something to really consider. But I think we set ourselves up to be much more empowered in our relationships when we're not seeing the other person doing a specific thing as our only option for us getting what we want. I feel like y'all are just like rehashing my couple's therapy right <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's this is literally <laughs> the same conversation that I've been having over and over again, where it's like these questions too, I think in relationships that are, that are super important. And my personal therapist was saying like, y'all need to sit and do some work around like, what does connectedness look like? What does being connected mean? What like these kind of things where it's like, oh, I need this to feel this. And it's like, well, then you need to figure out what this is. So if we're saying connected, what is connected? What are yes. other ways that you can feel connected? What are other times in your life that you feel connected where this person might not even be involved in the dynamic, right? Um, because again, it's like you're placing so much emphasis and weight and effort into this person giving you that feeling when the reality is we're pretty capable of getting those feelings um, ourselves in other ways in our life, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I actually, I steer away from the word connection because I, mm. I don't find it specific enough. Yeah. I, I, in, and in some ways I think that we're never not connected. Now, the type of connection that we're having, maybe it's not our preference to have that type of connection, but I see mm -hmm. frustration or anger as connection. We're exchanging Agreed. something, right? It may not be what I would like to exchange. I would like to exchange warmth and love and whatever appreciation. So for me, so many people are saying what I want is connection, but I think it, it can be helpful to be even more specific about the type of connection you want to be having. Flynn, do you find yourself to be a little bit more on the avoidant side of the spectrum? Uh, yeah. Okay. Both, 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 okay. both come up for me. <laughs> and I think often it depends on the relationship. Of course, of course. We're in, we tend to run more avoidant and we're in a relationship with an avoidant. I think oftentimes that can bring some of our more mm -hmm. anxious tendencies. Oh, yes. I only ask that half jokingly just because I think this idea of what you said about we're always connected um, 
And I'm actually even starting to grapple with these terms that we're using, right? Avoidant, anxious, like avoidant as a word has such a negative connotation. And I'm kind of at the place in my life where I'm starting to call bullshit on that because I'm looking, I mean, Danae and I talk about this ad nauseum, right? About how codependent our society actually is and how I think a lot of avoidant, quote unquote, avoidant tendencies get bastardized. And I, and I, there's a part of me that wonders sometimes, uh, is it really, or is it actually just that it's a response to a hyper codependent, um, kind of clingy way that we expect relationships should be and look. Um, and sometimes I'm like, am I really the problem or am I actually a little bit more normal here? I don't know. Normal is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? That's kind of why I asked that when you were like, we're always connected. I'm like, yes, yes, we're always connected. Right, right, right. And I, I think that people who find themselves in anxious attachment, and I've found myself that I've been same, in a relationship same. where I'm anxious. It's so, it's so mm -hmm. funny how that happens. Um, where it, and you know, I mean, if you've been there, you know what it feels like. It's like you need a specific type of connection. And if you don't get it, it's like you're deprived of oxygen. Like you need mm -hmm. this type of connection in order to breathe. And I haven't really figured out why certain relationships bring that out of me and others don't. Um, I think it's, I, for me, I think it's probably a control thing. Like there are certain types of people where like more of a controlling tendency comes out. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. There's, I'm realizing there's a whole lot for me to think about there with that. Or to, but, <laughs> You're <but> welcome. <laughs> I, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's and so yeah, in that in that case, like if a person is being like overwhelmingly anxious, like the, a person who doesn't want to engage in that isn't necessarily an avoidant person. They just might be turned off by that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the validation is <laughs> an opportunity for us to reach more in the direction of self-actualization and mm -hmm. that this person is inviting me to look at some of this anxious energy that's coming to the surface for me and i think there's something in what you're saying like i believe there's just like a human tendency when something is demanded of us our inner teenager just starts to flare yes. we are just like then it's like, I'm not doing that for you. And I find so often couples are in these like flipping back and forth from parentified dynamics and like, I'm trying to parent you and force you into some place you don't want to be. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on this one. Like, I just believe there's way too much of an ownership template in mm -hmm. the way that we hold relationships. And what would it feel like if we sort of started with a baseline of this person is never yours to own. Yeah matter what like, even if you are married to this person and have been for 20 years they still do not belong to you and yeah. how might we hold our relationships a little bit differently you know yeah fantastic question i i think in order to do what you're saying which is to experience a relationship where you don't really want to have a sense of ownership of the person I, I think that, yeah, I mean, self-actualization is the thing. I think the more of a self-actualized person you are, the less desire you have to control other people. And actually the more desire you have to support others' self-actualization. So mm -hmm. what is self-actualization? To me, it's this, and I'm curious about what you both think about it, but it's in any given moment, I'm having an experience and I don't mean experience as in like, I'm at a party and I've got like a red cup at my hand. I mean that I'm 
feeling a particular way in any given moment. That's the thing that characterizes my experience. Most of us for most of our lives are not intentionally choosing the experience we're having. It's being created for us as a result of our conditioning. Mm-hmm. And to me, what self-actualization is, is getting clear on how I'd like to experience a particular thing and experimenting with creative ways of experiencing that thing in any given moment. Mm. Um, and so if a person is living most of their life like that and living, let's say, even 50% of the experiences they're having, they are consciously choosing I think being in that place, you realize you have everything that you need. You have everything that you want because you have all of the emotional resources that you could ever want. They have access Mm -hmm. to them. And if you have everything you need, then the idea of being in a place where you think what you need is to control another person, that it's like, I want to be as far away from that as possible. But I have been there before. Because I didn't know how to be a self-actualized person. So I think not needing to own or control a person, I think it requires self-actualization. And in that place where you are choosing the experiences you want to have, like if I'm choosing joy, well, okay, if I'm choosing joy and I'm like selfish and only thinking about myself, maybe, maybe I can experience five or six out of 10 joy. If I want to experience 10 out of 10 joy and I'm holding myself responsible to experiencing however much of what I want is possible, then it seems like the best strategy available to me is to support others' access to joy as well. So in that sense, it's like, I just want you to be the exact version of yourself that you want to be. The most expansive, bright, whatever it is that you want, that is actually a strategy that I'm using to amplify my joy. So it on the surface, mm-hmm. it looks like it's like selflessness, but actually it's pragmatic selfishness. Or not, right? Or like not. also I think I tap into joy by saying like, you clearly actually don't want to be for whatever reason on your journey um, on this self-actualization bus with me. And I have to stop trying to drag you along with me because that's the point to your point of being self-actualized is that I don't want to control anybody. So if somebody is clearly telling me whether that's verbally or non, uh, they don't want to be on this bus, then part of that is letting them go with love and saying, I'll see you maybe in the next lifetime. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like the person that you want to be may not align with showing up in this relationship that amplifies both of our joy. And that's like, okay. Like, that's right. okay. Mm. I mean, I just could not possibly love it more, Flynn. I feel like, yeah, there's something in, and I hear you speak to this a lot, like we don't get what we want until we realize that what we want is available to us in any moment. And I, I love how often I hear you use the word choice. And I think there's mm. a lot of resistance to that. But we can look at, you know, the idea that we are making a choice in any given moment as hard or empowering. Like it can right. be super to say I am actually the creator of my experience and if I truly believe that I think you know in what you were saying um to me self-actualization is the realization of myself as the creator Mm. as cup of the universe or however you choose to hold that but that I get to create this life um exactly as I want it and desire it to be and so if if that is to be love and experience people um, through the lens of love, then how how can I be love? How can I um, serve through love and 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 spread that around? Right. 
such you said that so beautifully. I'm I'm really curious about what you both think about why why do you think it's difficult? Why do you think people find resist or, or often resist the idea of that kind of choice that we're making a choice in that way? It's funny that we were just having a similar conversation before we got on with you. We recorded another episode because we we recently did an episode with um, Danielle Laporte, and she spoke about this idea of uh, today's kind of social media landscape. And she was saying um, that we've become over-identified with our trauma, the ego Mm -hmm. especially, right? And I was saying this clip has gotten more reshares of any cheaper than therapy episode we've ever had and also the most pushback simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, her and I, Danae and I got on to, to talk about that. Like, what is that? Why is that, you know, this idea? And so I think it's that, I think it's that we, we identify too much with things outside of self and that the terror that the ego really has around letting go of that, because what does that mean? Like, who am I, if I'm not anxiously attached, if right. I'm not somebody who's been traumatized, if I'm not, you know, the victim of X, Y, and Z, like, what does that mean? Who am I? And I talk a lot about this with my clients where I say like, you have to understand that the ego's number one priority is to preserve itself. Mm-hmm. Right. So if by going on this journey, you might teach, I'm going to say air quotes, teach <laughs> the ego that it's actually wrong, that you're not a victim of X, Y, and Z, that you're not, you know, your trauma or whatever these things are that you're identified with, the ego is going to fight against that because it doesn't want to be wrong. <laughs> it's like, this right. is who I am, damn it. Right. You know, um, I don't know, Danae, what, what, what's coming up for you? Yeah, I also think it's that inner authority piece, right? Like so much of what we historically have been conditioned to believe is that like, if, if we take it back to religion, there's like some sort of an external, external. authority yes. that is the deciding factor in my life. And if, even the idea that this is like a life school and all things are lessons that God would have us learn. And God is sort of like, you know, ruling over whether or not we're making the right decisions. That's very much the the narrative that we've been raised with. But if I sort of say like, I am that thing that I believe is, um, the creator of my experience that's me being responsible for my experience and you know with great power comes great responsibility and i think mm-hmm. sometimes there's a little bit of a shying away from like it's always been in my hands it's uh, the dorothy and the wizard of Oz always has power right like, yep you just are a little bit resistant to come to that realization it's always been me, scary um, standing in my way of taking the reins back. right yeah. Yeah, what I what I hear in that, kind of in the combination of what you're both saying, is that whether or not we choose to be aware of it or to own it, we are creating something. Whether yes. or not we are we choose to own that, in this moment, I am creating an experience. And I could either choose to step into a space where I'm like, okay, yes, I am doing that. Here's what I would like to create, or I could continue to pretend that that's not the case. And mm-hmm. like, it just seems to be that choosing to take that lens is, is a choice that ends up creating more satisfaction and more fulfillment for people, right? It just seems to be this. And I think the cool thing is, is like, again, with this kind of stuff, 10 years ago, I would have been like diving deep into physics and cosmology to prove why it's true that like every person is a creator. 
I, we don't even need to know if it's ap- absolutely true or not. It's just a tool. It's a t- t- mm. like it's a tool. Would you like to take this on, apply it to your experience, see what it does? Does it help you produce more of what you like? If yes, then it seems like it's a valuable tool to continue to continue to use. I love that. I was just talking to a couple this morning and I was saying to the woman, like, I think you get to believe whatever you want. I'm just saying, like, how does it feel? Yes. Like, I think if you care more about how you feel and having satisfaction in your partnership, then you will sort of say, like, I actually have a choice about how I'm holding this. But do you want to be right? <laughs> or do you want to have some fulfillment? And <laughs> It's totally up to you, but sometimes we're making the choice to stay stuck in the narrative of our suffering. I, what I will say about that, though, is that it's it's like I was saying, it's scary. I mean, I think the reality for so many people, because I agree with both of you 100 percent and I, I've experienced this in my my own life. But I think the re- the reality for so many people is the fear of walking a tightrope without a net. And that mm-hmm. net, I think, for a lot of us is the other. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I quote unquote, screw up or make the wrong choice. This is what happens so often with those of us who struggle with kind of codependent personalities. We become what I call like the polar. Like anytime I have a big decision to make, I have to pull everybody in my life. Well, what do you think about this? And if I did this, like, what about that? You know, and I'm, I'm asking everybody partially because I'm terrified of making the wrong choice because then I have no one to blame but myself, right? Which by the way, just comes from the belief that there's such thing as a wrong choice, but that's a whole other conversation, yep. right? Yeah. But I think exactly what we're saying, the, 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 I think one of the barriers for a lot of people to get to the point that we're talking about is that fear of not having a net because then they, they, they have to hold themselves accountable for both the quote unquote good and the bad. And it's that bad that tends to just completely cripple us. Um, I think cause so many of us haven't actually, I don't know if it's been raised with, but like really been given the tools to sit in the bad and not it, not let it establish us as bad. Yeah. If that makes sense. So what I, what I really like about what you're saying is that stepping into a space where we are responsible means that if we make a choice and the, and things don't go the way that we might like them to go, that we are to blame, right? Mm-hmm. What is inc- that makes sense in a particular paradigm in which blame exists. It's exactly. also an option to step into a paradigm where there's no such thing as blame. Where mm-hmm. there are just things that happen and we can like some things and dislike others and we can pay attention to what seems to produce the things that we like and do more of those and do less of the things that we don't like. And, and there yeah. is an option for existing in the world without any blame at all. But I think you're so mm-hmm. right. The reason that many people are afraid of stepping into personal responsibility is because of the projection of a child of childhood conditioning of what it means yep. to be responsible for something. So if you got in trouble for making mistakes and you were blamed, then you learned that that's a thing that you're supposed mm-hmm. to do to yourself and other people. Mm-hmm. Or to avoid at all costs. <laughs> right. And, and it's terrifying. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But there's some sort of punitive energy for making a mistake. I think people often like really are resistant when I say that I don't believe in mistakes. And it's like, if we sort of take like, this is how we expand. This is how we come to the space of understanding whatever our next steps are supposed to be. We're not meant to know, but I think there's such a, again, there's this external authority that knows something that I don't know that is going to 
blame me or make me wrong if I make a quote wrong decision. But what does that even mean? What would that even look like? Yeah. And I think I, I think a cool way of going with that. So if a person is terrified of blame, a cool, a cool, it's not the direction, but an interesting direction to go could be like, okay, well, let's say you do everything right. What happens with that? What is what does that give you access to if if some external entity has determined that you've done everything right? Like maybe mm-hmm. maybe a person is seeing that that means that then they get to access love or relaxation or calm. So mm. all of this noise, all of this mess trying to avoid blame is a strategy that the person has learned to use to access love, but it actually yeah. produces the opposite of that. So it's just an yeah. ineffective strategy. <laughs> Well, so much of this stuff is, right? Yeah. Like when you were saying that as as a bona fide perfectionist, because that's how I was raised, when you were saying, what is that? Before you even listed, I was like, peace. <laughs> and then you said all of your answers. I was like, oh, there it is. Yeah. yeah. It's like it produces peace if I can just be good and be right all the time um, because I was seeking that so often. And you're right. It's actually the opposite of peace that I'm producing by continually uh, avoiding, quote unquote, being wrong and instead always trying to be right. That's the yep. opposite of peace. Right. What I, what I find with a lot of people who are in that pattern, um, well, if uh, like, so, so we're experimenting with the idea of it being determined that they did everything right. And, and what I find that, and we'll say, okay, so what happens? What happens if this entity that you've identified as an authority says you did it right? Um, yep. Then, then the person is like, oh, well, then I'm not anxious. So it's like there's this part of them that's seeking relief from anxiety. And I think that yeah. many people aren't even, uh, aren't yet aware of what they actually want, which is peace. Yeah. They just know what yeah. they don't want, which is the anxiety, right? Yeah. So, like, so there's just so much good stuff in there to explore. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Okay, wait, I want to, this is the question that I want to ask. And I'm going to ask it now, Danae, because I'm aware of our time. And this was something that came up and I sent your video to Danae. No, I want to talk about this. Okay. You, you did a video about where you said you don't like the word authenticity. Uh And I'm, I'm curious, obviously you went into a whole explanation in your video, but for our listeners, I would like to hear you talk a little bit more about that because it is a word that I think today and I use, um, it is something, I guess, in my own personal journey that I use as, I don't want to say a benchmark as if it's something I'm holding over my own head because that's not how I mean it. I don't mean it in like a punitive type way, but it is, it is a little bit of a marker of like how on track I am with this kind of self-actualization journey. Um, am I hiding from my authentic self or am I actually leaning into it? But I hear you say you don't like that word and I'm curious to know if you can explain why. I, first of all, I really appreciate you both like diving into my content. Thank you so much for like actually <laughs> caring and paying attention. I really appreciate that. Um, and I'm really glad you brought this up. Um, okay. So I, for a long time in my life, I was the kind of person who didn't know how to bring different friendships together. I like okay. different person with different groups of people. Right. And the idea of having everyone come together all at once was like, I wouldn't know how to navigate that because I would, it would ask me to be too many versions of myself at once. Right. Mm. The, 
the person throughout my life, kind of like my, my bedrock, who I felt the most comfortable with, uh, is my sister. And when I'm with my sister, I'm like playful, goofy, like crazy, all that. Right. And I, I, I lived my life for a long time hiding that version of myself from other people. Mm. And with other people, I might have felt more anxious or, uh, I, I, I'm not even sure of the words to describe, but not being that version of myself. So I was noticing this pattern and in a relationship actually with the person that I did that video on, like trying to convince her to text me in certain ways because I wanted to like enthusiastic good mornings. And, um, in that relationship, it, the same thing was happening. I, I was a version of myself with her that wasn't necessarily reflective of who I was with other important people in my life. And so mm. my sister came over, she, I was in living in Philly at the time I went to grad school in Philly. So my sister came over to visit and, um, she, to have dinner. So we all had dinner together. And after the person I was dating at the time, she left my sister who had smoked a lot of weed at that point, uh, cried. So she was crying because she didn't like seeing that version of me. And the idea of like me going on that trajectory, she just was like sad about that. She didn't like it. So, um, in that moment, I was like, okay, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. My favorite version of myself, the, the, the version of myself that I feel the most expansive in is the version of me when I'm with my sister and she is cool. She's smart. She's fun. Like she's really cool, really smart, really funny. So like if that person likes this version of me, then maybe I can just be that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I could see how one might call that the authentic version. I think for me, it's more helpful to describe that as the playful, expansive, fun version, because I know what playful, expansive and fun feels like. I don't necessarily know what authentic feels like. And I think authentic would be different things at different times, right? So I know for me that like, I don't really want to be the anxious version of myself. I don't want to be the afraid version of myself, but I wouldn't consider those versions of myself inauthentic. They're just versions that I don't prefer being. So I kind of Mm -hmm. see it all as authentic and I'm playing in the space now of like, okay, so let's say in a given moment, what I want to experience is playfulness. So what would playfulness look like? How would playfulness mm-hmm. show up through me? And just kind of letting my persona do its thing as playfulness expresses itself through me. And I find that to be something that gives me the thing that I think people are going for when they're trying to be authentic. So it's more of a felt-based understanding of the word rather than labeling it, which feels a little bit like cognitive. Exactly. Is that a simple way to put it? Yeah. Exactly. It's like, because for me, like what my experience with authenticity is chasing a concept of authentic, right? And so if I'm chasing a concept of authentic, not rooted in anything tangible that I can sink my teeth into, which is a feeling, then I'm in this space of like assuming what authentic looks like, likely judging what's inauthentic. 
And if I'm judging what's inauthentic, then I'm likely experiencing fear and contraction. And if what I want mm-hmm. to be experiencing is joy and expansiveness, then it seems to me like setting myself up to judge things as authentic or inauthentic is a strategy that produces less of what I'm trying to produce as a result of calling something authentic. I love it. You know, there's something in the way that you describe it. Like I've heard you describe it as making yourself small in relationships in the past. Um, You were on John's podcast and you were saying that, you know, there was some part of you that believed that like you needed a quality in another person that you couldn't replicate within yourself without this person. And so I needed to make some part of me smaller in order to maintain that relationship. And I remember when my marriage ended, I, I like made this promise to myself that I was never going to make some version of me smaller in order to maintain an attachment with another person again. And when you said that, I was just like, God, yeah. And I think there's something in what you're saying about it's not so much that like I felt like I was inauthentic in my relationship before, but I couldn't be the fullest expression a lot of yeah. times of who I felt like I wanted to be in the moment because I I felt like it would sever the attachment. Right. Somehow. So well said. You your like concise descriptions are so spot on. Oh, that's <laughs> why I love her. <laughs> that's why I love her. Yeah. I think I, it's- that's a- it's a good way to put it today. It's it's when I think about it's funny. I had a very similar experience actually with my own sister in my in a old relationship where she was very young too. She was only like thirteen, mm-hmm. and she made a comment about that where she said we were with work friends of mine, and it was a good friend of mine who just was like one of the funniest people you'd ever meet, and we just laughed and laughed. And when we left, she at thirteen, the, out of the mouths of babes, said, "I just always pictured you dating somebody more like him," and I was mm. like, "What?" And she was like, you just, you're not you when you're with so-and-so. And I just remember being like, wow, have somebody that sees you, truly sees you, right? And knows you. And to be able to say that in a loving way was a real kind of wake-up call. But I, I like what you're saying about this fully expand, this full expansion of self. It's kind of like I'm toying with this idea or this concept of like the wild woman archetype right now. And I think that that's it. This wild woman archetype is not necessarily authenticity. It's more about fullest expansion of self and not having to apologize or make small any part of the self in order to make somebody else comfortable, in order to keep an attachment, right? Um, Letting the chips fall where they may. Y'all are, you know, you're in control of your own selves. I don't have to do anything about that. Um, But but living in expansiveness, I think, is really the the goal. I mean, for me. That's so cool. What, what is, what I'm thinking about as I hear you say that is that what you're describing to me sounds so much more fun than chasing the idea of being authentic. What I hear you saying is like, I'm experimenting with this wild woman archetype right now. And I'd like to see what I can get away with. I'd like to see like how far I can push these edges and find the limitations and play with the limitations. That sounds really fun. And I'm really happy for you that you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if John's really happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) No, to be fair, he'll benefit from it in the long run. But (laughs) it is fun for me in the moment. Also terrifying, but fun. (laughs) Yeah. We get to have fun. Well, we want to be mindful of your time plan, although I'm just like, no, gosh, um, but we do have a lightning round of questions that we ask all of our guests. If that's awesome. Okay. 
So the first question is, who have been your greatest teachers, mentors, people that have inspired you um, up to now, either people you've known or people whose work has really inspired you? I, my sister is one. I think like that feedback system or feedback mechanism mm-hmm. that you're talking about, like my, my sister has been the teacher of joy and fun for me. So her for sure. And I can't remember how many years ago now, but if, uh, several years ago, I started working with a coach who's now my friend and mentor and business partner. Uh, and his name is Julian. And I, I really believe that he is one of the world's best kept secrets. Like he is so next level in terms of self actualization that I, it is mind blowing to me. And I like, I don't even know how old he is. He might be in his fifties. Like I, I need him to live another 50 years. So I get another 50 years (laughs) of like accessing his perspectives. But so before meeting Julian, all of these ideas and perspectives were like, they had nowhere to go. It was exploding inside of me, unorganized, chaotic. And he's helped me streamline them to make these thoughts and perspectives actually useful for other people, which in turn has made them useful for me. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, okay, so the next question is around this kind of idea or concept of flow, right? So what is it that you find yourself doing when you're in that state where you could just like blink your eyes and six hours kind of goes by? <laughs> um, surfing, playing tennis. Playing tennis is a big one. I'll, I can play for 10 hours um, and it goes by like that. Writing, I really enjoy getting to wake up and drink coffee and write and create content. Um, so those are the big flow things for me right now. Can I, can I say a kind of non lightning thing about flow? Yeah. Okay. So this comes from Julian. So thinking about flow, there's sort of micro flow and we get, Mm -hmm. I think about after four hours of that in a day, we get diminishing returns, takes too much energy. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there's a macro flow, like the experience of life where synchronicities happen and just like one plus one is greater than two. That's what the macro flow of life seems to be. What Julian says, my, my mentor, and I love this is that when we see flow as sacred, we're less likely to experience it. It's no different than choosing to eat and being clear that in order to eat, I have to make food and put my fork in the plate in the food and put it to my mouth. So when we're having a macro experience of flow, it's just one of the options available among many. And the clearer we get on the things that we're doing and the frameworks we're applying that seem to be producing that experience, the more we can get of it. And yes, it feels better, but it feeling better doesn't mean that it's actually better than another experience to be having. So it's like, Mm. it's the most special, but in order to access it requires not seeing it as special. Yeah. When we're having a macro experience of flow. Oh, I, love <laughs> I, I kind of feel like I can apply that to joy in a lot of ways too. I feel like we seek out happiness, right? People are trying to emulate or seek out happiness. And when instead you hold joy with less, it's actually less sacred and you just, you allow yourself to experience joy throughout the entire day. Um, there, that feels like micro macro to me in a way. And, yeah. As well. and, and so I think about it like this, like, So if what you want is to experience as much joy as possible, okay, that's the goal. Great. Mm -hmm. It's one, that's a choice you get to make. If you see 
emotional experiences as hierarchical and you see joy mm-hmm. as better than fear or sadness, it's setting mm-hmm. you up to judge fear or sadness. So if it's in you right. or in someone else, and that's not, it's not, that's not inherently a problem. It's only a problem because when you're judging, you're likely in something in a state that's closer to fear. So seeing right. it hierarchically sets you up to get less of what it is that you want. It's, it's this like really right. funny, tricky thing. Love it. Um, what breaks your heart? Well, <laughs> um, okay. What breaks my heart is people that is the is is the world not caring about supporting certain groups of people's access to self-actualization uh i think that self-actualization is a pretty replicable thing and i think it would be a fantastic endeavor to learn about the different types of people who experience self-actualization, like from what communities, from what places, geographically, and to figure out what those things are and to provide more of those things seems like a worthwhile endeavor. And the idea of ignoring that is heartbreaking to me. Is it ignoring or is it um, purposefully keeping it from people to maintain a certain status quo. You know, that's a great decision. Is it is it by design in order to maintain a status quo? Like I think in I don't really know. I've seen evidence to suggest that it is. Um mm-hmm. and I also really believe that whoever is designing that, I'd love to lend them compassion and curiosity and be and and explore what they're hoping to get as a result of maintaining that system. And I mean that sincerely. Uh I think that that mm-hmm. would be the only person for that the way that that person would change. I'd like to slap the shit out of them. But <laughs> I mean that's But yeah, uh, the compassion the compassion sounds good. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> well, it's be- it's because it's not because I see compassion as virtuous. I see it as what's most likely to produce a certain result. So, 100%. right, if I want a particular thing to change in myself or in the world, I just have found that compassion is the thing that's likely to produce the change. It goes back to that totally. thing you were saying of like being right. Do you want to be right? Or I, I can't remember who you were saying. Do you want to be happy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's why I think that there are certain people that are put on this earth to embody certain um, uh, qualities, but also like exist in certain structures. Like a friend of mine was saying the other day, she was talking about Elizabeth Warren and she was like, I was watching her in this, she was talking to a group of people and she was getting kind of hurled insults by somebody on, you know, politically. And she goes, and she was so poised and she was just so clear and she was so compassionate, but she was so kind of steadfast. And she said, I thought, God, I wish I could embody more of that. And I said, but that's not your role in this lifetime. You Mm. know, like there's a reason why I'm not an Elizabeth Warren. Like I can't do that because I, (laughs) I, at least in this point, like I would want to slap the shit out of that person. (laughs) Listen, I, I, I love compassion. I preach compassion. I want to be more compassion and, I know the kind of structures of my personality as it exists in this life and in this embodiment. And so I have other strengths and 
that might not be my biggest strength, you know, but that's, I think sometimes it is for certain people. <laughs> that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. I mean, the universe does produce different types of flowers. You know what I mean? Like there mm -hmm. does seem to be a distribution of qualities and things. I really like that way of seeing it. <laughs> that's the way that I justify not, not giving compassion. Comes down to. <laughs> okay. The last question. Um, what is your favorite food? Okay. I have a kind of an annoying answer about with this, but I think you'll appreciate <laughs> it. My favorite food is food that was treated with love from at every step of its existence. Um, I, when I'm eating, I really think that the most important thing is that I'm exchanging a particular experience. And mm -hmm. if I'm eating food that has been ignore so supposedly research has shown that ignoring something is more harmful than like uh abusing it physically i can say right? that mm -hmm. so if food has been treated like it's this this non-entity like think about what that's doing what, like what's happening there and i just like don't want mm -hmm. to participate in that i don't want that in my body um and i I want to be participating in systems where everything is treated with appreciation and curiosity and mm -hmm. admiration. Talking to two people who haven't eaten meat many, many years. So um, that's part of my reasoning for it too, actually, is exactly what you just said. <laughs> I yeah. do. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, I was just, what you were saying, Vanessa and I just went on a trip to Hawaii with a chef who just put so much love into every bit of food that he'd been raising from the beginning and it just you could taste it like it was so yeah. different experience of indulging in this food and i think that's so rich. right yes yeah. it's like yeah. the, the appreciation and the love brings life to things i think i think like it's i think it just brings life to things and it creates a better experience yeah agreed well, Flynn, I got to tell you, I absolutely love the way that your mind works. I feel like you are such a treasure. I'm so grateful that I found your content. And thank you for the teacher that you are, the way you're showing up in the world. I really think it matters. And I think you're having such a tremendous impact and such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Dream. I have like goosebumps all over my body. I've had so much fun speaking with you both. You're both so, I love the way that you see the world also. And it's so fun to be able to talk about important, heavy, sometimes heavy things in this like loving, appreciative way. And I really appreciate you both being able to show up in that way. Mm, thank you so much, Ben. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you. Um, just in case people don't already follow you, will you tell them where they can find you, what you've got going on right now, anything? Of course. Like that? Yeah. The, the best places on Instagram at Flynn Skidmore. Um, I'm, I really, one of the things I'm most proud of is the, the conversations that happen in the comments and in the DMs. Like I, I like being involved in that. So if these are the types of things that you like thinking about, like, please come join those conversations because the people who follow me are mind blowing. Um, so yeah, that's the best place. I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. Mm -hmm.